the words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 5, verses 31 to 35. The Gospel according to St. John, chapter 5, verses 31 to 35. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from men. But these things I say, that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light. And ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Now, perhaps the sentence of all others that I want to pick out of that statement is what we read in the 34th verse. I receive no testimony from men, but these things I say, that ye might be saved. Now those who attend here regularly will know uh, that uh, as we take up these words, we are continuing a study in the consideration of this fifth chapter of John's Gospel, which is a, a most important and crucial chapter for this reason. Our Lord uh, in Jerusalem had gone on this occasion, uh, which happened to be a Sunday, to a famous place, the Pool of Bethesda around which were always crowded together a large number of people who were sick and ill in various ways and forms, blind and he and lame and uh, halt and so on. There they were, waiting to have an opportunity of going into that pool. It was said to have medicinal powers, and there was a theory that an angel came down into the waters and disturbed them, and that whoever first got into the water after this disturbance would be healed. Well, you remember the story. In the midst of this crowd, there was a man who had been impotent in his legs, unable to walk for 38 years. And suddenly he's approached by a stranger who said to him, Wouldest thou be made whole? And the man said, What's the use of saying that? I'm a poor man. I've got no servant or anybody to put me into the water. I've tried many a time, but always somebody else gets in first. And here I am. The whole situation is hopeless. Then suddenly, this stranger, who was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, looked at the men and said, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And he did. He arose immediately. Now this, as you remember, led to trouble. The Jews, the Pharisees were troubled about this because this had happened on the Sabbath day. And they regarded our Lord, therefore, as one who was breaking the Sabbath. And they go to him and remonstrate with him concerning this. And he meets their attack and their criticism quite openly and makes it quite plain and clear to them that not only is he not breaking the Sabbath and thereby going contrary to God's will, 
but that in healing this man he was doing the will of God. And then he elaborates by saying that everything he does is the will of God, that indeed his will and God's will are one. And they saw at once the implication. They said he's making himself equal with God. And he doesn't dispute it, he doesn't deny it. He goes on to say that the Father has shown him everything, so that all his words and all his deeds, everything he does, is just a carrying out of the will of God. But still, these people are in trouble, so he goes on making statement upon statement. He says, this that I've done to this man has surprised you. He said, you wait a bit. I'm going to do something that will really cause you to marvel and be astonished. I've got power, he says, God has given me power to give life to people. New life, spiritual life. Not only that, he says, God has given me the power to exercise judgment. Because I am the son of man. Now then, that's the point at which we have arrived. And what we are taking up this evening is a continuation of that. Our Lord, you see, goes on speaking to these people. Why does he do so? Well, he tells us in this 34th verse, which I'm emphasizing in particular. It's here we see his amazing love, his wonderful patience. Here are these Jews, these Pharisees, these religious authorities, showing their bitterness and their antagonism to him trying to trip him and to trap him, but still he goes on talking to them. He makes these tremendous statements, they don't see it, and yet he doesn't despair of them. He still continues. In spite of their opposition and their enmity, he still loves them, and he says, I receive no testimony from men, but these things I say, that you might be saved. There was nothing he wouldn't do in order to make their salvation possible. Now the question confronting us this evening is, what does he mean by this? Well, in a sense, he's already been telling them. He's just been talking about the judgment. You remember his words. He has been saying something like this, the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear the voice, shall hear his voice, and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Here is the context, you see. Here is the setting. He says, I'm speaking, I'm going on, I'm saying these things to you in order that you may be saved. And it's my business to put these words before you this evening for precisely the same reason. He kept on saying this throughout his life and ministry, that he had come into the world to save. The Son of Man, he says, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. What does he mean by this? I'm saying this, he says, that you may be saved. What is it to be saved? Well, this is obviously a profound and a fundamental matter. There's no difficulty about answering the question. 
If we really believe that this is the word of God, if we are content to receive it and to expound it, the, the, the Bible makes it perfectly simple as to what it means to be saved. Let me remind you very hurriedly this evening. According to this book, every one of us born into this world is lost. And that is why we need to be saved. According to its statement, uh, the whole world lieth guilty before God. There is none righteous, it says, no, not one. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. Now, that's the fundamental postulate of the Bible from beginning to end. And it is upon that background that the gospel of Jesus Christ comes in. And it has no sense nor meaning apart from that. And when our Lord says, I say these things that you may be saved, that is what he has in his mind. Let me put it like this. Everybody born into this world is guilty in the sight of God. If you like it in other language, it, it, we had it there at the end of that third chapter, which we read at the beginning. Uh, this is how it's put. It says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. It's already there. And if he doesn't believe, it will continue to be there. It will abide upon him. The wrath of God is upon everybody. The man who believes is delivered. But if he doesn't believe, the wrath of God abideth on him. It's still over him. Now, everybody likes John 3.16, and that states it very well again. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If they don't believe, they perish. It's here everywhere. Now this means, I say, that we all of us by nature are sinful, and therefore guilty before God. This is a great doctrine. I haven't time to go into it thoroughly this evening, and perhaps this isn't the occasion for doing so. But according to the Bible, we are all sinful. We are all sinners. That is something that is universally true of the whole of mankind. Every one of us has sinned. We have broken God's law. We have spurned the name of God. We have not lived to the glory of God. Well, that's to be a sinner. But we're even born with a sinful nature. Everybody born into this world has a sinful nature. And one of the first things we do in life when we begin to act voluntarily is to give proof of that. We delight in doing things that we're told not to do. We always want what's prohibited. The smallest child, it's true of him. That's the sinful nature coming out. The rebellion and the pride, and the selfishness, and the self-centeredness. It's there from the very beginning. Here it is. It's universal. 
The Bible even goes a step further and says that every one of us is a sinner in the sight of God because of our relationship to Adam. Now I say the material fact for us this evening is just to realize this. That we all are guilty before God. That this wrath of God is upon us. Now listen to the Apostle Paul saying that in his particular way and manner. In writing to the Romans he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is a righteousness from God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed, has already been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Now there's another way of saying it. You see what it means is this. That we have all of us sinned against God and therefore the wrath of God is over us and upon us. That means this, that God looks upon us with displeasure. That we have been separated from the life of God and the enjoyment of the life of God and the enjoyment of a life of fellowship with God. It means that we are outside the life of God. And that is why the world is as it is. That is why it's unhappy. That is why it's frantically trying to find satisfactions which it never succeeds in finding. Man has got within him some recollection of a life which he once had, and he's lost it and he'd like to have it back, and he can't find it. That's a part of the wrath of God. Man has been banished, driven out of the garden, if you like, thrust out of paradise, and he's trying to get back, and he can't get back. He's not allowed to get back, and the whole time he's subject to death. And after death, the judgment of God about which we were speaking last Sunday evening, it is appointed unto all men once to die, says the epistle to the Hebrews, and after death the judgment. And what we are told is this, that if we go out of this world as we are, and with the nature that we had when we came into it, on our nature, on our record, on everything, the wrath of God will fall upon us. And that means to be eternally outside the life of God, to go on existing not only as we are at present, but even worse. Useless remorse, seeing the futility of it all. That is what happens because we are guilty in the sight of God. Now we need to be saved from that. We somehow need to be saved from this condemnation of God's holiness and righteousness. We need to be saved from this penalty that is pronounced upon sin. It's there and we can't escape it. If we know our scriptures at all, we know that God has made it plain. He's given a revelation of his own holy nature. He's told us how he made man in his own image and made him perfect. He's given us the Ten Commandments and a moral law. We cannot plead any kind of ignorance. And we've all failed. We've deliberately sinned against him. And he says that that will be punished by banishment out of his sight. 
and the suffering that that inevitably leads to. The guilt of sin. We need to be saved from it. But we not only need to be saved from the guilt of sin, we need to be saved from the power of sin. Because we are under its power by nature. And surely nobody wants to dispute that. Isn't the moral fight the greatest fight of all? Isn't temptation strong and powerful and mighty? Don't we all go down and fail and then kick ourselves metaphorically and feel this remorse and this wretchedness? It's the power of sin. It's the dominion of sin. It's a mighty influence and it holds us in its grip and we can't extricate ourselves. The power of sin, we need to be saved from that. And then, as I say, we need to be saved likewise from its pollution. Because the trouble with us, as we all know, if we know ourselves at all, is not that we are perfect and righteous, but that evil is around us and gets us down. We often sin when we are alone and when the world isn't with us, as it were. Our very imaginations are evil. Our thoughts are evil. There's a principle of evil within our very nature, in our constitution. We are polluted. We are a fallen race of people. There is decay in us. There is decadence. This whole nature of ours has become twisted and perverted and soiled. It's bespattered. It's no longer clean. And that's why David cried out, Oh, create Within me a clean heart, O oh God. The thing that really worries a man when he begins to see himself in the sight of God is not merely that there's evil in the world, but that there's evil in his heart. Why is he enticed by that? Why does he want to do it? Why does he deliberately go out into it at times, seeking it even, and making provision for his flesh? Oh, it's because his nature is polluted. It's because he's twisted, because he's become foul. Now, that's what the Bible means when it says that we need to be saved. And that's what our Lord meant when he spoke to these men and said, I receive not testimony from men, but these things I say that you might be saved. You need to be saved. You're guilty. In the sight of God, you're under his wrath. You need to be saved from the guilt of your sin, from the power of sin, and from the pollution of sin. If you want to go on and spend eternity with God in heaven and in glory, something's got to happen to you. You need to be saved and delivered from where you are and put into another position and made new men and women. That's what he means by being saved. And you notice what he says to them. I'm saying these things to you, he says, that you may be saved. By which he means this, that he alone can save them. That he's in the world in order to save them. He's been telling them that. He's been trying to put it to them. He's told them that he can give them life they don't listen. Oh, he goes on. In his love, I say, in spite of their opposition and antagonism, he goes on. How can I put it, he seems to say. What can I say to you? I've been telling you about myself. I have told you that the Father tells me everything, that our mind is one, that our will is one, our desire is one, 
I've told you the power he's given me to have life in myself. I've told you that he set me up because I have come on earth as the judge of all the world. But he says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. By which he means, not of course that his witness actually is not true, because everything he says is true. What he means is this, if I bear witness of myself, you will say that my witness is not true. You won't believe me. You've got a saying to the effect that everything must be proved before two or three witnesses. All right, he says, I will meet you on your own ground. There is another that beareth witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Who is this? This is none other than God himself. I have a witness, he says, if you're interested in witnesses. I have a witness that is absolute. Well, now then, he says, I want to help you. How does he witness to me, this other witness, whose witness I know to be true? Well, he says, he witnesses to me in many ways, and he takes up the first, and here it is. The witness of John the Baptist. And that is the witness that I want to consider with you this evening. But as we come to do so, may I make it perfectly plain and clear what my object is? I'm not here simply to expound scriptures in and of itself. That's a wonderful thing to do. Thank God for the privilege. There's nothing that I know of that's comparable to it. If you want intellectual exercise, go and study the scriptures. It's a marvelous exercise. But God forbid that I should be here just to give you intellectual satisfaction. As God is my witness, my objective is this. I'm trying to put this before you that I may do as the mouthpiece of the Lord Jesus Christ what he said himself he was doing when he says, now what about the witness of John? It is that you may be saved. Here is the momentous thing that faces us. The claim of this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is that he alone can save. He said it to these Jews. They didn't believe him. Why didn't they believe him? They didn't believe him because they didn't realize who he was. That's the trouble. They regarded him as just a carpenter from Nazareth. It's the person of the Lord that is the key to the whole situation. And if we are not right about his person, well, there's no point in going any further. The whole thing is suspended upon his person. I'm saying these things, he says, that you may be saved. I want you to see who I am, because if you see who I am, you'll see that it inevitably follows that I alone can save you, that I've come into the world to save you. It's still the same this evening, my friend. I don't like the question as it is sometimes put very glibly by people. And yet I've got to put it this evening. Are you saved? Are you saved from the guilt of your sin? What are you going to do about your sins? What if you had to die this evening and stand before God? What are you going to say for yourself? When your record is put before you, 
your spurning of God, your deliberate self-will, the things you've done deliberately, the way you put your own mind and desire before that of God, and your failure to live to his glory and to his praise in the whole of your life. What are you going to say for yourself? What are you going to say when your sins are put in front of you? That's the question. Have you been saved from the guilt of your sin? Have you any answer to give to God's holy law? Have you any reply to give to the judge himself there upon the throne? When the record is produced and the charge is made, what's your answer? You see, we know now very well whether we are saved from the guilt of our sins or not. Well, says somebody, I've always tried to live a good life. Does that get rid of what you haven't done? What's the value of that? Here is the record. Here is the demand. What's your answer? No, no, this is something about which there is no uncertainty. A man knows whether he's been saved or not from the guilt of his sin. You are either in the position of being able to say, I'm ready to die. I'm not afraid of the judgment. I know that my sin has been dealt with. Or else you're not. Are you saved from the guilt of your sin? Are you ready to stand before God in the judgment? We've all got to. Our Lord said it, we considered it last Sunday, no one can escape it. Whether you like this type of preaching or not doesn't make the slightest difference. It's not my theory or idea. I'd be a fool to stand in a pulpit and say what I think about these tremendous matters. It's the voice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God's love. He says it. This nonsense about it being the 20th century. It's not the 20th century with God. God's outside time. He lives in eternity. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And modern knowledge doesn't make the slightest difference. These things are absolutes and eternal. Are you saved from the guilt of your sin? Do you know what you can do with your sins? I'm speaking, says Christ, that you may be saved. Saved now from that guilt. And the power and the pollution of it all. Very well, I say, there is the question. Well, now, this is his reply. He has come in order to save. He alone can save. There is none other. It's the whole message of this book. And now, in order to help the people, he turns to them and he says this. You yourselves, he said, sent to John the Baptist to inquire concerning me. Now, he says, let's look at it like this. I've made my statement to you. You won't listen? Very well, then. You say you want witnesses. I'll call my witness. My witness is really God. He's spoken in many ways. Here's the first, John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Very well, let's listen to the first witness sent by God. Now, says our Lord, you yourselves sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. And you remember we read it at the beginning. This is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? 
And you remember his answer. It's here in this first chapter of John, and in that portion we read from the third chapter of John's Gospel. Shall I summarize his evidence for you? Shall we listen to what John the Baptist has got to say about this Jesus of Nazareth? This is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternity. Ask him then, let's go to him, let us send our deputation and ask him what he says. And this is what he says. And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. You see, they were beginning to think he was. He was a remarkable man, a blazing prophet there in the wilderness, clothed with camel hair shirt and a leathern girdle, eating locusts and wild honey, a phenomenon, a prophet again after a lapse of 400 years when there hadn't been a prophet. They said, this must be the Messiah. This must be the man. We've never seen or heard anything like it. Out they went and listened. And they put the question to him, art thou the Christ? John said, no, I am not the Christ. I'm only the forerunner. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight a highway for our God. They thought that his demands were tremendous, his ministry was profound. They sent deputations to him, remember, what shall we do, they say. You can read it all in the third chapter of Luke's Gospel. No, no, says John, this is all preparatory. He preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He told them, do a thorough work, get down, confess your sins. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. They said, this must be the Messiah. No, no, said John. I'm only the herald. I'm simply the little man running in front of him. I'm not the Christ. I am merely the herald announcing his coming. My ministry is purely preparatory. That's his first statement. I could elaborate that, but I mustn't this evening. If you wanted it, it would be something like this, you see, that morality isn't Christianity. John preached a morality, a very stern and strong morality, but that isn't Christianity. He said, let him that hath two coats impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. He told the soldiers not to kill anybody violently. It was a high demand. It was a wonderful moral ethic. But he says, that isn't Christianity. This is all preparation. This is all preliminary. This is all, as it were, prospecting the ground. The great building has not yet started. Very well, he, he says, I am not the Christ. He's not the one who can deliver. None of the prophets could deliver. He's the last of them. Our Lord bore him great tribute. He says he was a burning and a shining light. And on, on another occasion he said, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist, the last of the great prophets. But a prophet can't say. Read your Old Testament prophets. 
Follow that mighty line of men. Read their wonderful sermons delivered to the nation of Israel. Not a man of them could deliver himself, leave alone, deliver another soul. Go back and look at the patriarchs. Look at that supreme gentleman, Abraham. Even he fails. He can't save. He can't save himself. Not a man of them can. I am not the Christ. Well then, what does he say? Well, he goes on. Listen to him. He says, I am not the Christ. They say, well then, are you Elias? No. Art thou that prophet? He answered, no. Then they said unto them, who art thou? And he makes his statement. And then he ends it, you remember, by saying this. I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. Let's listen to his testimony. What does he say? No, no, says John, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. There's another man standing among you, Jesus of Nazareth. You don't know him. You don't recognize him. He's the one. Listen, says John. He's infinitely bigger and greater than I am. I'm not worthy to stoop down and undo the very latchet of his shoes. Though I come before him, he's preferred before me. Listen to him as he goes on. He says later on, This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. When was he before him? Was he born before him? No. John was born before Jesus. And yet he says he was before me. What is he talking about? Ah, this is one of his ways of saying that he had come out of heaven and eternity. He was before me. He was before the foundation of the world. He didn't come into the world before me, but he was before me. Here he is beginning to tell them who he was. And then he brings out this tremendous bit of evidence. John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, that's God, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And this is John's evidence. He stood there at the Jordan. He had just baptized this Jesus. And then to his amazement, he saw the Holy Ghost descending as a dove and settling upon him. And he remembered what God had told him. When you see that happening, then you'll know the one. I didn't know him, says John, but I saw the dove and I bear record. I saw and I bear record that this is the Son of God. Now, my friends, we are dealing with history here. The whole of Christianity depends upon this. Do you believe this man's testimony? This is what he tells us he saw. But then he goes on and tells us more. He says that Jesus is the bridegroom. Don't think I'm the Christ, he said. I'm simply in the position of the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, if you like. And he is not the important man. 
He is merely the assistant. He merely makes the preliminary arrangements. The one that really matters is the bridegroom himself. Here is the one sent for the bride. The bride is prepared for him. I'm speaking of one who is the bridegroom, he says. I am merely the assistant, the friend. I stand aside. He must increase. But I must decrease. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? People, he said to the Jews on this occasion, you sent your own deputation to John. You've had his answer. Why don't you listen to him? This is what he said. He said, here is the heavenly bridegroom. But then he goes on and tells us still more. I read this in the third chapter in the 21st verse. In the, in the 31st verse. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthy and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Why do I preach Jesus Christ here Sunday by Sunday? Here's my answer. I'm not preaching a man. I'm not preaching my own ideas. I'm not preaching the ideas of philosophers. He that cometh of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. I'm here because I know that all human philosophy has failed. That all the ideas of men are collapsing. I know that in this mid-twentieth century there is a collapse of civilization and all human thinking. It's of the earth earthy and it cannot save us. But here is one that cometh from above and he's above all. Indeed he has come from heaven and he is above all. Why should I listen to Jesus Christ? Here's a further answer. What he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. Oh, that we might see and understand this. Man at his best is but trying to arrive at God. Trying to arrive at a knowledge of God. He sees his world in its confusion and in its pain and in its chaos. And he says, what can we do? What is God's will? But he doesn't know. But here is one who hath seen and heard and who testifies to what he has seen and heard. My dear friend, the gospel is in its essence and in a nutshell just this. That into this world has come the Son of God from the side of God. He doesn't speculate. He doesn't put up theories and hypotheses and suppositions. He has seen God. He has heard God. He knows God. The mind of God is his own mind. And God's will is his, as he's already been saying. And he comes, and he doesn't say perchance, perhaps. He says, this is. He is sent from God. And he speaks for God. He's already said this himself. Do you remember how, about a year ago, some of us were considering our Lord's own words in the third chapter when he said this? We speak that we do know. And testify that which we have seen. And you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and he believe not. How shall he believe if I tell you of heavenly things? 
And no man hath ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven. Even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, this is it. He's the scent of God. He has come from heaven. He's not merely a man. John goes on to say that. He whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given him all things. There it is, that's his testimony. Why don't you listen to him, said the Lord to these Jews? You sent unto John, and he bore witness unto the truth. And the truth is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. What's the matter with this mad world? Why doesn't it listen to him? Why doesn't it believe his message? Why doesn't it see that he's come to save? Why, the answer is, they won't believe that he's Son of God. They call him Jesus, just a man. They don't realize that the incarnation is a fact. That the babe of Bethlehem is the everlasting son come out of eternity into time. Why won't the world listen in its awful crisis and shame, in its terrible predicament? Why doesn't it turn to him, God speaking? He was come from the side of God and from heaven with the word of God, who has heard the voice of God, and who tells us the things of God. I am not the Christ, said John. He must increase. But I must decrease. My preparatory work is finished. I came to set the stage. The divine actor has entered. I vanish in the wings. Look at him. Listen to him. Don't come to me. There he is, son of God, sent by the Father to save. Why don't you believe his testimony? Said the Lord Jesus Christ to these Jews on this occasion. And I ask the same question this evening. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal Son of God? Do you realize that his coming into the world is the most momentous event that has ever taken place? In all your thinking and meditating and worrying, about yourself and about the state of the world, do you bring it always into the focus of this tremendous fact that God has come in his Son and has spoken and he has come to deliver? I can't work it out with you this evening. God willing, I may attempt to do so next Sunday night, but this is something further that John said. He said, he is the Son of God. Yes, but the mere coming of the Son of God into the world doesn't save the world ipso facto. It might make us still worse. It might damn us still more. We can't live up to our own standards. We've broken the law of Moses. 
We can't keep the Ten Commandments. Here's the Son of God walking before us in all his absolute perfection. That damns me still more. His mere coming doesn't save me. But that isn't all, says John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Behold the sin-bearer. Behold one who's come to take your guilt upon him and to bear your punishment and set you free. Behold the Lamb of God. God's Lamb to take away the sin of the world. I indeed baptize you with water. I merely cleanse your surface a little bit and get rid a little of the little of the mud and the mire and the blood and the shame and the vileness and the ugliness and the foulness of it. But when your skin is clean as the result of my bit of washing, your inside is still full of ravening and of wickedness. I indeed baptize you with water. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire whose fan is in his hand and he will truly purge his floor and gather the wheat into his garner but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Son of God, why has he come? He has come to save us from the guilt, from the power, from the pollution. Lamb of God, baptizer with the Holy Ghost. Ah, yes, but at the same time, the judge, the one with the winnowing fan who will separate the wheat from the chaff. Whosoever believeth in him hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the wrath of God abideth on him. My friend, You've heard the witness of John the Baptist. You've heard the testimony of the one of whom our Lord says that he's a burning and a shining light. No man hath arisen greater than John the Baptist. No man, no son of woman is greater than this. Listen to him. There's his evidence. There's his testimony. Behold the Lamb of God. The Son of God. These things, said Jesus, I speak unto you that you might be saved. I don't need the testimony of men. I don't need the testimony of John even. But I'm saying this because I want to help you. I see you're under the wrath of God and I see you remaining there unless you believe. Believe him when he tells you that I am the Son of God. And the Savior of the world. Do you believe the witness? Do you accept the testimony? 
Have you bowed your knee before him? Have you taken your position with Thomas? And have you looked at him and have said, My Lord and my God. And have you given and abandoned yourself and your whole case entirely into his hands? Because if you do, you'll know that your sins are forgiven. That you're delivered from their guilt. You'll know that he's delivering you from the power. And that eventually he'll so deliver you that he'll present you faultless. Before the presence of God. With exceeding joy. Believe the testimony of John the Baptist. Believe. On the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. Amen.